Hi there. Corey Fry. It's 1985. Good morning. And oh, what a 2019 it's been. At the start of the new year, some 50,000 works from 1923 entered the public domain. This was huge news as it marked the first such official clearing in 20 years when Congress stamped an additional dos decades of protection onto existing creative works, essentially freezing us quick bucker stupid. Goodbye, Sonny Bono Copyright Extension Act, and rejoice! Dust off those 1999 invites to screenings of Cecil B. DeMille's original Ten Commandments on the side of a Datsun at your city park. You're in the clear now. Go ahead and publish the Prospects of Industrial Civilization by Bertrand and Dora Russell. Their descendants won't see a penny, and likely neither will you. Actually, in this year's crop, there's some terrific shit. You've got some chaplains that aren't the gnarled and battered mutuals and SNAs you've owned a million times on VHS. Agatha Christie's up for grabs, as is Harold Lloyd's Safety Last. E.E. E. Cummings and D.H. Lawrence can be yours. No one will arrest you for doing the Charleston in public. We've got passels of sonatas, plus some Kalmar and Ruby and Jelly Roll Morton. But we're not going to talk about any of those. Instead, Maestro, ignite the Victrola. You may recognize that voice. It belongs to Eddie Cantor, the so-called Apostle of Pep. He was one of this country's most popular entertainers in the first half of the 20th century, and he made it look easy. He was never a great singer, but boy, could he move in spritz. One flitting roll of his banjo-sized eyes could drive audiences to hysterics. As a younger man, Eddie also enjoyed this weird distinction of seeming wholesome and devilish at the same time, like the human lump he sang about in Irving Berlin's You'd Be Surprised. Mild-mannered in sunlight, handsy in the dark. Eddie was a mainstay of the Ziegfeld Follies, an annual review that corralled the world's biggest names, squeezed them onto an unbeatable bill, and threw them at a captive throng. There'd been a minor hiccup in 1919 when Cantor fell out with impresario Florence Ziegfeld, who'd helped make him a star, and who felt betrayed when Eddie joined the strike that helped launch the Actors' Equity Association. But Eddie was too big a name to keep away too long. And in 1922, the Ziegfeld Follies was such a party that it continued right into the new year with an extended summer edition that actually began in June of 1923. It was here that Eddie commanded the stage with yet another surefire hit, Oh Gee, Oh Gosh, Oh Golly I'm in Love. With its cutesy patter and fluttering gushy goo, the number complemented his persona perfectly and he'd sing it for the rest of his life. Audiences were probably familiar with the song by then. Eddie had already recorded it in New York, likely in the Woolworth Building, where Columbia Records and its studio were then located. According to records, it was completed in four takes on June 12th. What you heard earlier is from the released take, Take 2. It was paired on 78, Columbia A3934, with Eddie Steady, recorded two days later. Oh gee, oh gosh, oh golly I'm in love. God damn, that is so much fun to say. Anyway, it was a decent hit. By the end of June, Billy Jones and Ernest Hare, also known as the Happiness Boys, had transformed it into a duet. And about 15 days before the Fall Follies debuted, violinist Jan Garber and pianist Milton Davis 
leading the Garber Davis Orchestra, took a crack at it from the instrumental side. Here's take four. Others have taken cracks over the years, too. Interestingly, May Questel recorded it in 1940. I don't have a recording handy, but let's just put it this way. May gave Betty Boop her voice. So that's pretty much what it sounds like. <laughs> For my generation, May's also known as the dotty old aunt who wraps her cat in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. For funsies, here's a modern interpretation performed by Chris Carlyle, whose work you may have heard recently in Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Now for the fun part. We're going to talk about the guys who wrote it. Right after this. Hello, I'm Daryl Wellbouts, owner of Hangar 18. You have quarters, we have games. Defender, Tempest, Popeye, Centipede, Foo Fight, Trioluck at Pole Position, Baby Pac-Man, Donkey Kong Jr., Spy Hunter. If you play track and field and you break your favorite comb, do not worry. We will replace it at no charge to you. We even have pinball. No waiting, except on Haunted House. Do you dare wave the holes? And do not forget the Dig Dug Championship this Saturday as Memorial 6th grader Big Daddy Jimmy Sawyer defends his city title against newcomer Harmony Castle, whose family has moved here all the way from Beaverton. But do not just take my word for it. See for yourself at Hangar 18 on Pacific Boulevard and visible from the Taco Bell drive-thru. Welcome back. It's 1923, and if you hear rhythmic pounding in the background, it's because it's prohibition, and we're building a bridge to abstinence. Or it's just the maintenance crew recarpeting the empty apartment next door. We're a no-frills operation here at It's 1985. Good morning. Today we're exploring a little number called Oh Gee, Oh Gosh, Oh Golly I'm in Love. Swell as hell from beginning to end. It captures the cutesy pangs of first love's burst when an enterprising boy plants one on his gal pal mid-conversation. She giggles, he swoons, and is gone for good, prone to explosions like, I love to hold your teeny-weeny hand in mine. I get a piggly-wiggly feeling down my spine. Soon he pretty much begins washing his garments in Rivers of Mary Garden, a bewitching Parisian fragrance named after a world-renowned Scottish soprano. His mother can't help but notice. Little hearts pop everywhere. What ails you, Aloysius, she asks. But her boy isn't sick. He's just insane. Plowing through his wardrobe for collars and ties. There's a home to escape and a betrothment to plan. The songwriters sound like a couple of comedians. In fact, that's exactly what they are. At this point, they've been a team for a little less than 10 years. They're stalwarts on the Pantages and Keith Orpheum circuits, billed as two likable lads. They'll drop that jazz soon enough and become world famous under their actual names, Olson and Johnson. John Olson and Harold Johnson, known as Ole and Chick, respectively, came to vaudeville late in life. 
their early 20s. Unlike, say, the Marx Brothers or Buster Keaton or George Jessel or Jack Benny or even Eddie Cantor, they weren't trading boards while still in short pants. Olson was a college graduate, leaving Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois in 1912 with a degree in music. He supported himself by playing violin in local dance bands. Johnson studied classical piano at Chicago Musical College, but succumbed to the lure of ragtime. Both performed in regional bands, so they were bound to meet sometime. And when they did, they discovered a kinship they shared with no one else. When those gigs stopped, Olson and Johnson joined Mike Fritzl's Frolics as musicians in 1914. But their chemistry was obvious even when they weren't playing. They hurled insults at one another during performances, exchanging barbs between beats. They found a rhythm of their own and an affinity for spontaneity that would become their trademark. Oh gee, oh gosh, oh golly I'm in love was just one of their songwriting credits. They worked on it with Ernest Brewer, an able songsmith who gave musical whimsy to the eternal question, does spearmint lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? Olson and Johnson also wrote Goodbye Now with Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. And famously, Olson co-authored the future standard You're in the Army Now with Tell Taylor and composer Isham Jones. If you're a comedy head at all, Olson and Johnson should at the very least ring a faint bell. Me, I love Olson and Johnson. I discovered them when I was about 15 years old, and American Movie Classics was a brand new cable channel that back then showed nothing but old movies. No original programming, no commercials, nothing. Just movie after movie after movie, separated by promos for movie after movie after movie, and segment after segment of the great Bob Dorian, who looked like your family pediatrician if your family pediatrician happened to be Hal Holbrook and could tell you everything you could possibly want to know about Rosalind Russell. And that's what made AMC great. They didn't just bombard you with old movies or adhere to the pantheon. They educated you. And it was on AMC that I first saw the Marx Brothers. A Night in Casablanca. Not the greatest entree, but enough to pique my interest. And I've been obsessed with them ever since. <laughs> and uh, not long after that, AMC put together this double feature. Um, one movie was called... Um, um, it was called Crazy House. It was Crazy House, made in 1943. And the other was its prequel, a little something called Hell's a Poppin', 1941. A tribute to Olsen and Johnson. And I'm like, who? Well, according to Crazy House, Olsen and Johnson were these two awful comedians who were so bad that just their names prompted people to jump out windows or shoot themselves off screen. Anything to keep from having to make a film with them. And um, I, I honestly had no idea what to make of Crazy House. It made no sense and was all over the place, so strike one. Hell's a Poppin', on the other hand, is absolutely insane. Oh my God. God, it is glorious. It's a rubber room, adult-sized bib masterpiece of 
parody and slapstick that takes the word madcap, flips it on its back, and kicks it in the balls. It is violently, happily, breathlessly stupid, and yet it's also one of the smartest and most clever, inspired, brilliant films I have ever seen in my life. When it came to comedy, I thought I was a pretty hip kid, right? Marx Brothers, Three Stooges, National Lampoon, Cheech and Chong, Saturday Night Live, none of that. Zero, zilch, nothing prepared me for the wild loop absurdity of Hell's a Poppin' the movie. My friends, I was in love. Olsen and Johnson were completely unlike any comedy team I'd seen to that point in my little life. God, it's 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 hard to describe. I mean, like like any comedian, they had shtick, right? Johnson had this freaky bad weedle boy laugh that I uh, uh, I got I, I I can't really do it. All right, because um, all right on him it's endearing. On him, it's cute. But with my voice, I'd sound like I was keeping teenage kidney donors in my bathtub again. And, um, okay, and Ole Olson, Ole Olson was the quote-unquote straight man. But he was a straight man only in the sense that he was a straight man exclusively to Johnson. And both of them were twin conspirators in this wholly warped universe. Oh, God, I'm getting the vapors over here. Back to podcast scholar voice. Hell's a Poppin' the movie was loosely based on Olsen and Johnson's popular Hell's a Poppin' the stage show, which ran for three years on Broadway from 1938 to 1941. When I say loosely based, I mean it in the loosest sense imaginable because Hell's a Poppin' had no story whatsoever. It's an extravaganza review that crashes upon itself in a dire heap of comic lunacy. Anyone who saw it on stage could leave the theater with stained finery, dodging eggs and live chickens and straight-jacketed clowns. A woman ran at intervals through the theater screaming, Oscar! Oscar! A man burst through the doors and went from aisle to aisle, loudly selling tickets to other shows. It's a gleeful celebration of self-sabotage, and its structure, such as it is, was flexible enough to add and subtract sketches to accommodate reactions to rising trends and breaking news stories. So, how do you make a movie from that? For Olsen and Johnson, this was a common problem. The spontaneity upon which they thrived proved difficult to replicate in other mediums, especially film. Films required structure. They required stories, conflicts, plots, resolutions. Hells of Poppin' had none of those things. Shape had to be given to chaos. It must have seemed an impossible assignment. But God love him. Screenwriters Nat Perrin, a Marx Brothers favorite, Alex Gottlieb, and Warren Wilson somehow pull it off. And they do it by mocking the tropes of conventional Hollywood storytelling. 
Even then, it was a tired formula. Wrapping the star's antics around a hoary plot involving two young, impossibly pure lovers, a romantic rival, perhaps a flim-flam man, and dreams of fame and recognition, the only happy ending worth anyone's time. Hells of Poppin punches holes in all of them, but follows them anyway, albeit with minor tweaks. For one, the romantic rival is actually a pretty nice guy, and he forgives easily. And the flim-flam man swindles no one, nor does he mask his intentions. <laughs> the joke is that he's actually not a flim-flam man, he just pretends to be for his friend's amusement. Played by screwball technician Misha Auer, he also spends much of the film incapacitated by Helsa Poppin's not-so-secret weapon, Martha Ray, who throws every corpuscle into her portrayal of a man-crazy sister. She sings and dances her brains out, lending a peculiar comic elegance to gawkiness and indifference to dignity. The love story's dressing, as it always is, and while Helsa Poppin acknowledges and resolves it, it doesn't particularly care about it. Its heart lies in set pieces with Olson and Johnson, the goonery of Martha Ray, the inexplicable costume changes, the fourth wall stomping, the humiliation of Shemp Howard, the gags, the business, the wanton destruction of the variety review that ends the film, and of anything resembling linear thought. This is where I'd like to leave my old friends Olson and Johnson. They never got to enjoy the twilight or posthumous renaissances of the Marx Brothers. They never became television perennials like the Three Stooges. They were here, and then they were gone. But their effect on comedy can't be denied. Movies like Airplane bear their signature. And somehow their reach, extended beyond time, clutched the throat of some 15-year-old goof and blew his mind but good. And even at 46, I find inspiration and joy in their work. And I wish it were better appreciated. Thank you, Ole and Chick wherever in your alternate universe you are. Oh gee, oh gosh, oh golly, and goodbye.